Uh, Happy New Year's, by the way. Um, If you follow the church calendar, this is the first Sunday of the next year. Uh, We we try to kind of orient ourselves around the church calendar so that we can celebrate the things that aren't just American holidays, but global Christian holidays that people um, in other parts of the world that that, uh, don't follow the American calendar um, are also celebrating. And so this is the first day of the new year. Um, Advent start kicks off um, the new year. So, uh, and we're obviously going to kick off a new series as well. And I'm, I'm really excited about this series, um, but even more, I'm excited about the fact that I'm excited about it. Um, because, uh, when I first kind of dove into the lectionary passages for this series, um, cause during Advent and Lent, we always kind of sync up with the lectionary, which all the like liturgical churches around the world are doing. So all the Anglicans in England right now are studying, um, out of the lectionary, uh, just like we are. So it kind of syncs us up with a bunch of other churches, which is kind of cool. Um, the Catholics are doing the same thing and a lot of the Methodists and, and, uh, Lutherans. So we're, we're kind of synced up with, with big chunks of the church for this next four weeks, which is, I always think is fun. But um, uh, I read through the Old Testament passages for lectionary. They didn't really do anything for me, so I went to the gospel passages, and they were kind of lame. And so I went to the they weren't lame. They just you know they were didn't really speak to me. And so I went to the epistles. They didn't do anything for me either. Um, and so I decided you know um, we could do, we could do this. You can always do the Psalms, right? It's Christmas. The Psalms are like the Jewish songbook, or maybe you would call them like the Jewish worship playlist. You know, there's they're. Uh, the Proverbs is like talk radio. You know, the Ecclesiastes is like listen to some old grumpy guy do a podcast. Song of Solomon is obviously like R&B or rap. You know, one of the things that comes with explicit in the corner. Um, but the Psalms would be like the stuff you listen to on the way to church, right? That's the worship playlist. Um, I actually share an Amazon account with my two daughters. Um, originally, you know, I thought, why not? Um, they love music and they shouldn't have to listen to all the commercials and junk. So I let them into my special Amazon account. And this is like our shared um, playlist. Um, and, uh, and just so you know, because this is church, way up there at the top, I had to black out uh, that word because um, this is church. So that is every pastor's dream. Um, and uh, and uh, so you, you might notice we have Christmas, uh, which is definitely not mine. You know, we got Justin Bieber and the Christian thing, so that's awful. Um, we've got country. Do not delete, which of course is the one that had the word I had to black out, so make sure we don't delete that. Um, Instantly, I clicked on that, and now all the songs have like parentheses with the word explicit in them, if, if uh, needs be. So Becca's grounded, that's all I'm saying. Um, we have jazz focus, that is actually mine. I listen to that when I write a lot of times. Um, then we've got some favorite playlists, um, none of which hold my stuff. Um, and uh, three different, uh, you know, the top year-end review stuff. And then three different things that, that are not country, whatever that means. Three different folders for not country. Um, shower songs, which apparently one of my daughters said that, you know, you have to listen to a whole different kind of music when you shower. So she has a playlist just for put on when she's showering. And then way down here at the bottom is, is, uh, is I think it's the next slide. Way down there. That's me. That's my one little playlist that I get um, on my Amazon account. And so, uh, so yeah, that's the Psalms, I guess. Um, Song of Solomon would go up there in the do not delete file, apparently, with all the other explicit music. Um, so, so I didn't really have much inspiration um, going into this series. I just figured um, Christmas, uh, as shows in my daughter's playlist, is a time for music. Like of all these playlists, we have one just for Christmas. Um, how many of you are already pumping the Christmas music? Anybody? 
We got a few? Okay. Um, and there's this like long running debate as to when it's like appropriate to play Christmas music, right? So we're going to do a quick survey. How many of you say like Halloween or as soon as it's fall, like Christmas music can start? Okay, we've got, we've got, so okay, all year counts too. So we've got two of those, right? Um, after Thanksgiving. How many we got after Thanksgiving people? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, we got eight of those. Um, how many, oh, we do have all year long. Like you just, okay, so we got one all year long. So we got one all year long, one as soon as it's fall. But how many of you like maybe two songs in the Christmas Eve service and that's it? Like how many of you are that far? Like we got one. Okay. So, so Thanksgiving, we've, anytime you hear the debate, you can now say, no, 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 my church voted. It's settled. We've, we settled this. It's not until Thanksgiving period. Um, now we know. So, uh, <laughs> so I figured we could always find a way to talk about the Psalms during Christmas, because Psalms are music. Christmas is about music. Um, how hard could it be? And so I played with this idea for several weeks, and I, I read a bunch of stuff on music, and I got all kind of uh, geared up, studied out all the lectionary passages, um, and, uh, and, you know, and I'm kind of excited to dig into some of those, because those are kind of cool. But uh, I wasn't feeling like I really had a grip on what God wanted to say to us. So Esther and I went on our date night last week, and... and uh, and she could tell I was struggling and I was all up in my head and I wasn't really like there. And uh, so she asked me what was going on. Like, what's up? And I was like, I can't get a handle on this Advent series. I'm, I'm just struggling through it. And so she kind of genuinely compassionately like sighed and understood she was not going to have my attention until we, we got this um, settled. And so she was like, what do you got on the table? And uh, and I was like, well, I'm thinking about like background music, like to a movie, like the music that plays in the background, the score of a, of a movie. And she just went like, oh, I like that. And then she went on like a five minute rant. You could do this. You could do this. You could go this way. You could go that way. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, hey, whose idea was this anyway? Like, and, uh, and she didn't even want to hear any of my other options. And she was like, that's what you have to do. And so, um, so we titled this, this series score, um, because that's the real musical term for uh, when you orchestrate or arrange a piece of music for a movie, TV, or play. Um, and honestly, the, the second I had like settled on that idea in my head, um, the Holy Spirit started like really um, preaching in my heart. And so buckle up because this one could get a little preachy. Um, this has been kind of a fascinating study for me because I spent a lot of time reading about uh, kind of the miraculous power of music um, in, our, uh, in our health and wellness, actually especially as we participate in it. There's a difference, a huge difference between listening to music and participating in music, singing or playing along. It actually changes everything. Um, here's just a few of the known benefits they've now studied scientifically. Singing is scientifically proven to increase lung capacity, improve mood, and lower all your stress hormones. Um, singing and playing music provides a link between the emotional center of the brain, the cognitive center of the brain, and the motor center of the brain. Very, very few things get all three of those regions activating together. And so you're, you're using the, the rational cognitive function as you're thinking through lyrics and, and making everything happen in time. You're using the, the limbic function because it strikes all of the emotions. Music is very emotional. It speaks to our limbic cortex. And you're using all the behavioral functions and motor skills because you have to sing and use your vocal cords or your hands or whatever you're using. Very few things actually use all three of those centers at once. Participating in music is one of those. And these functions are all super important to fend off diseases that, that come with neurological decay. There's like music um, 
slows all of those um, decays. Listening to music lowers stress hormones, increases immunological function. Your immune system actually goes up when you participate in music. Uh, people who sing always test higher on every uh, happiness quotient scale. And you might argue that they only sing because they're happier, um, like happier people just sing more. But it's actually not true. They've taken blood levels before and after singing um, like a, a small concert. And um, while singing, the brain releases endorphins and all the neurotransmitters associated with happiness and well-being. Like the act of singing makes your brain release those. Um, when you participate in music with others, that means singing or playing an instrument with someone else, not just by yourself like in the shower, but with your special playlist, um, but with someone else. Um, it doesn't even have to be good music. It's just that you're all singing basically the same words at basically the same time and basically the same key. Um, it, uh, it, um, uh, it, it releases all the neurotransmitters associated with feeling connected and loved. Like the same feelings you get when you feel loved and connected, you get when you do music with other people. It makes your brain release all those because you're feeling like, hey, we're all doing this together and it's awesome. Um, one study showed that participating in music or singing, that means singing or playing, releases cytokines, which are hormones necessary for an immune response. When you sing or play music, your cytokines go up. Um, and it lowers cortisol levels, our stress hormone, uh, to the point that every patient in this study they did, which was several thousand people, healed faster and responded more favorably to all manner of treatments from diseases as simple as the flu to as, as great as cancer. Um, emotionally, singing has a positive benefit on our emotional health because it has a way of provoking emotional response that carries the mind to a memory that our conscious mind might try to dodge. So when you're in one of those spots where you have those memories you just don't like going to, they're too deep, too too emotional, music can take you there like that. And even if you try and dodge it, and if you've never experienced that, you must be a robot because, you know, all of us have that song that as soon as the band starts playing it, like, poof, like the, the emotions like just drop. Like, and, and that is your brain going into a place it doesn't want to go. And music takes you there even when your conscious mind is like, no, I don't like feeling that much. Um, music can take you there, which is actually super healthy. Um, singing has been used to treat lung disease and increase breathing capacity uh, in a way that without as much stress as like exercise. Um, uh, so they people who can't quite exercise, they need to increase lung capacity. They have them sing um, uh, as treatment. It's also been this one was really cool. It's also been used to treat stroke patients um, who are trying to regain their uh, ability to speak. Um, a lot of times uh, they'll have them start by singing because singing comes from your left brain, which is where a lot of your emotions reside. Speech is almost entirely right brained. And so a lot of times they can use singing when the right brain is damaged to train the left brain to do speech. They use singing to and there's actually been quite a few patients who can never regain the capacity to speak. But as long as they sing their response to people, they can communicate through song. How weird would that be to meet that person who, when you talk to them, they can only talk back if they sing it. Like, that would be so cool. Because um, then I would have an excuse for just bursting. And my kids hate it when I just burst into song for no reason. But then I would have an excuse. Um, the benefits go on and on. Improve sleep. Um, relieving muscle tension, improving posture, opening up the sinuses, improving balance in Parkinson's patients, and on and on and on and on. Like there's study after study after study of the power of music. So how cool is it that 3,500 years ago when God reached down and saved his people, the very first thing that Moses does is write a song. 
for all the people to sing. It says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to God, giving voice together. I'm singing my heart out to God. What a victory. He pitched horse and rider into the sea. God is my strength. God is my song. And yes, God is my salvation. This is the kind of God I have. And I'm telling the world, this is the God of my Father. I am spreading the news far and wide. That's the very first thing the people do after being saved is sing. And look at those words, my strength, my song, and my salvation. Um, do you think the ancients understood the power of song 3,500 years ago? Moses isn't saying God is like the very strength I need to live. He's, he's, he's the saving grace in my life. He's the saving hand. And he's also this kind of pretty background you know, sound that I listen to. No, no, no. He's like saying song is as important as strength and salvation. Like he is my song. Like, like, like everybody knew how valuable that was 3,500 years ago and science is just figuring it out today. Moses is like, he's my strength, my salvation and my song. I can't live without any of those. Um, so Moses knew. Uh, and so the fact that this science is just now proving, you know, what Moses knew 3,500 years ago, um, is always cool to me. And then, of course, 2,500 years ago, the psalmists wrote the lectionary passages that we're going to dive into uh, this year. Um, but there's one lectionary passage that kind of sums up what we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks. And it reads like this, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before Him? Day and night I have only tears for food, while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, Where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sounds of great celebration. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. Now I'm deeply discouraged, but I will remember you. Even from distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan and, and the land of Mount Mazar, I hear the tumult there it is of the raging seas as your waves and surging tides sweep over me. But each day the Lord pours His unfailing love upon me and through each night I sing His songs praying to God who gives me life. So, I'm not going to hide my main point um, this time uh, till the end. I'm going to tell you right up front what the series is about and then we're going to spend all of Advent kind of unpacking how we do this. Um, and I wish I had time to unpack this entire psalm because it's so rich. There's some really cool stuff. Um, that that reference to Mount Hermon is is crazy cool. God told them when they first went to the promised land to go to the mountain of Shechem and Hermon and declare all the blessings of obeying God from from Shechem and declare all the curses if you disobey God from Hermon. And so when he says, even from Mount Hermon, in other words, even when I disobey and I'm living out the consequences of my disobedience, I still know you're going to be good to me, which is super amazing. And that's not in my notes but because um, we don't have time to do that. But um, I wish I could unpack it, but we can't. Um, but we're going to do some stuff with the first half of this. Uh, and if you're a note taker, write some of this down because this can absolutely change your mental health. I believe that with all my heart. Um, the first thing we're going to look at is the author's state of mind as he dives into this song. It begins, Day and night I have only tears for food, while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, where is this God of yours? And the first thing we're going to talk about in this series is the messages in our head. The messages in, in, our, in, our, in our life. How many of you guys know that, that we have a lot of messages in our head today? Like, anybody? Like the, it, is, it is not quiet in there. We're told how we should eat. 
how we should raise our kids, where we're getting those things wrong. Um, we should be ourselves. Unless ourselves is offensive, then we should be anybody but ourselves. Um, we're told to feel guilty about loving God and His Word. Have you thought about that? How weird it is? Like, if you go back just not that long ago, even non-Christians, like, wanted you to feel guilty if you broke stuff in God's Word. Like, like it was just kind of... Now, the only thing you have to feel guilty about is if you try to obey God's Word. Then it's like, um, you're not supposed to feel good about that. You know, there are so many messages that just play like a soundtrack in, in, in the background of our lives. Just the messages that, that just play all the time. And these messages are the, are the music that give the... Have you ever watched one of those things where they show a scene from a movie with no music? My favorite one, you go look it up. I was going to show it, but because we stream online, you never know when that's going to trip some center and, and kick us offline. So, so we can't do that anymore, which is um, kind of a bummer because we used to just break censorship laws all the time in church, but now we have to obey them. Um, but... Uh, but there's a the best one. Look it up. It's it's the the scene from Empire Strikes Back, and it's all it's the main characters walking into this great procession, and they play it with no music. And it is the most awkward. And they're just walking, and Chewie's like, Aah! and they just walk in silence. And then you play it with music, and it's this huge dramatic you know scene with clapping and orchestral you know crescendos, and it's super cool. But anyway. That, that music, those messages that play nonstop, give the scene color. They give it emotion and depth. And right now, the music that's playing is, is setting that scene in our hearts. And in Psalm 42, the singer is lamenting the score of his life. The background music is awful. All day is just dissonant chords that give the soul no hope, no peace, no joy. He's like, all I hear is people saying, where's your God? Like, that's the background music of my life. Tears and, and, and chiding. And in verse 4, the songwriter says something we hear every day today, especially if you're anywhere near my age. My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. Anyone ever say this? Some version of this? When I was a kid, nobody acted like that. Anybody say that this week, probably? When I was young, schools and kids' sports respected Monday or Sundays and Wednesdays. I say that all the time, pretty regularly. When I was young, there was wholesome stuff on TV. Anybody ever said that? Like, yeah, all the time. So the psalmist is surrounded by bad messages and hates the way the world is changing and seemingly falling apart around him. Starting to sound familiar? And the singer takes action. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I love the versions I learned. You know, uh, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? That's the way I learned this passage back in the day. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? I'll put my hope in God. And holy cow, this is so powerful. Um, this is some of the most contemporary psychology in the Bible. It's 2,500 years old. I read a lot of neuroscience, neurobiologists and stuff. Um, who are kind of on the cutting edge of the field right now. I'm just fascinated by it. It's just kind of what I do for a hobby. Um, And I've heard every single one of them recently say that self-awareness is the first step to mental health. And here's what they mean by that. There's a fancy modern word for it. Metacognition, if you want the word. Metacognition. To think about the way you think. Most of us don't do that. We think thinking is automatic. We just let it run its course. And almost everybody on the cutting edge of neuroscience is like, when you can stop for half a second to think about what you're thinking, you can regain your, your mental health. Like, it's, it's, it's thinking about how you think. One of them uses the acronym ANT. 
um, for the score that plays in the back of your background. Automatic negative thoughts. Most of us have ants in our brain. Just they just roll all the time, and we think that that's just how it is. That we just we have no choice but to think negative thoughts, like because that's just what's in there. We have ants in there. And, and he said the biggest key to getting rid of the ants in your brain is recognizing them and, and realizing you don't actually have to listen to them. Earth shattering. You don't have to listen to those. Um, we have this tendency to think that our thoughts just come from us, like they're just what are, are in us and part of us, or at least they come from like some core part of us. Um, and they said the, the, the biggest key is realizing we are crazy, complex creatures. We are capable of multiple thoughts all at the same time. Like we are capable of being completely in love with somebody that we also want to strangle with our bare hands. Like we are capable of both of those feelings. I love you and I want to kill you. And they're both true. I don't know how that can be, but they are. We're capable of feeling like like really upset, like everything is falling apart, and at the same time, knowing God is in control and, and believing that everything's ultimately going to work out okay. We're capable of feeling both of those. They're both real. We, 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 we can hate our own behavior and still manage to, to believe we're a decent person. Like we can hold both those thoughts that we are really complex people. Like there, and, and so, uh, when we own the fact that, that we can feel like nothing is ever going to be okay and feel like God is in control at the same time, once we realize we can do both of those, suddenly we realize we have the power to choose which one we want to let play. And, and it's not that one is true and one is not. Oftentimes they're both true. And we just get to pick which song we want to let play. Once we realize we're actually a complex creature, then we can actually take a second to arrest that negative thought and decide to go, that's not helpful. It's true, but there are other things that are true. Why not focus on those things that are true? That's metacognition, thinking about the way you think. So, um, most of us only fail to do this for one reason, one reason only. We don't realize we can stop and do it. That's the only thing that keeps us from doing it. We don't realize we can stop and analyze the way we think, and and pick something better. We feel like we have to feel this way, um, and we have no idea um, that we can do something else. So the most contemporary therapy techniques today, what what they're trying to get people to do, because I read that ANT acronym in a book that was written in 2021. This is new stuff. This is metacognition. is a fairly new concept, fairly new word, brand new. And the psalmist was doing it 2,500 years ago. Why are you so discouraged, O oh my soul? Talking to himself, thinking about what he's thinking. Why are you so discouraged? Why so downcast, O oh my soul? I'm going to change the song and think I'll put my hope in God. That's brand new stuff in the world of cognitive therapy. It's awesome. The psalmist is doing it instinctively. What therapists and counselors are doing now because science has discovered something that I think the Bible's known forever. You can speak to your own soul. You can metacognate if you want the fancy word and go, I don't want to think this. I'm going to choose to think something else. And here's why I think um, this is really healthy psychology and not just denial or cramming our feelings down you know, deep inside where they only come up in unhealthy ways. Because he says, 
Now I am deeply discouraged, but I will remember you. This is not denial. This is not the psalmist. You know, the, the psalmist owns his discouragement. He owns his frustration. This isn't cramming it down deep so you don't have to deal with it. No, this is authenticity and choice. This is saying, this is what I'm feeling. I'm going to choose to feel something better. I'm going to choose another truth, not truth and falsehood, because that's when you try to deny what you're feeling, you know, then your brain goes nuts because your, your brain goes, no, I'm actually feeling that. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Like, that's not a healthy way to live. And so going, you know what? I'm really discouraged right now, but I also know God is good. I'm going to focus on that fact. I'm going to choose the song that plays in the background of my head. This is how I feel, but I'll choose to feel differently. So, um, whether you get it from Psalms 42 or modern neuroscience, I believe learning to speak to your own soul or metacognate, if you want that word instead, can absolutely change your mental and emotional health. The psalmist is surrounded by bad messages. I hear them every day. Where's this God of yours? Where's this God of yours? I hear the messages. And I remember better days. That's in there bouncing around. The world's falling apart. Everything's going to hell. Like, I hear that message. And you know what? I'm going to choose a better song. I'm going to hit the next button and choose something better for the background of my life. So the, the psalmist chooses a better score, but, and we generally call this finding your butt. Most of the lament psalms have a butt in them. And the whole point of the psalm, as you're, as you're crying out to God, everything that frustrates you is you're looking for your butt. He says, but each day the Lord pours out His unfailing love upon me. And through each night I sing His songs, praying to God who gives me life. Starts out by going, i got nothing but tears for food. Like, ah, but I know you love me. I'm going to choose a better song. Everything is awful, but I know God is still good. The psalmist recognizes the soundtrack of his life, the score that's playing in the background, and stops to write a better score. And for this series, I'm, I'm, I'm putting the main point right up front. This is what we're talking about. We need to write a better score. Our world is full of terrible messages. Our minds are full of awful messages. And these are becoming the background music of our lives, and that's not okay. It's not acceptable. We're the people of God. We're supposed to be the head and not the tail, created to go over and not under. We cannot lose before because He goes before us in battle. In His strength, we can crush an army. We can, we can scale a wall, Psalms 18.29, where the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. God has plans for us, says the Lord. And the plans are for good and not for disaster to give us a future and a hope. And that and only that should be the background music in our lives. It should be an endless loop that just plays in our hearts and minds. That is the soundtrack, our score, and we need to take back the music that plays in the background. So what I hope to do this month is take our four Advent virtues. Peace, love, hope, joy. And we are going to choose. And this is where I'm going to get preachy because I'm going to be telling us all month, commanding us to choose peace, love, hope, and joy as the background music of our hearts this holiday season. You don't get to choose doubt this year. You don't get to choose worry and stress this year. You don't get to choose anger and bitterness this year. You don't get to choose fear this year. This is the song that the world sings. That's the score, the soundtrack for those who live without Christ. 
And you can choose a better song. So that's my intro. Everybody ready to get started for today? <laughs> you brought a lunch, right? Um, we're actually looking at Psalms 122, and I promise I'm not going to be here long. I already gave you the main point. It says, A song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem, a psalm of David. I was glad when they said to me, Let's, Let us go to the house of the Lord. And now here we are, standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a well-built city. Its seamless walls cannot be breached. All the tribes of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here. They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord our God, as the law requires of Israel. Here stands the thrones where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. Pray for the peace, or pray for peace in Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. O Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, may you have peace. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. Uh, so this um, song is kind of a neat one because of all the psalms, we're actually able to place the particular spot in David's life where this one was written. You can't do that with all of them, but a lot of them, you can figure out exactly where he wrote it, what was going on in his his life with a with a with a quite a lot of accuracy. So here's a little bit of background. David has a stellar early career. His life is like basically up and to the right all the time. Um, everything he does is great. Uh, he's a shining star until the king gets jealous of him. And then in one day, it all falls apart. The king is jealous, throws a spear at him. David dodges, has to spend like the next several years, I think it's like 14 years or 20 years, something I can't remember, um, running from Saul, living in the woods, living in the wilderness, um, running from the king. And then when the king dies, he actually doesn't just take over the kingdom, even though he'd been anointed king. He takes over the, uh, the leadership of like two little tribes in the south, his tribe and Benjamin, um, and uh, until the entire kingdom comes to him and is basically like, hey, why don't you rule over all of us? You were the one God chose anyway. And so he becomes king. And, and, and once he's inaugurated, the very first thing he does is attacks and conquers um, this Jebusite city, the Jebusite city of Jebus, where they get the word Jebusite. Like it is the capital city of the Jebusites. Um, it was a great stronghold that Israel was never able to take when they first took the, strong, the, the promised land which is why it's still there in the heart of Israel, because they couldn't take it. It was too strong of a city. So the very first thing David does is attack Jabus. Um, in fact, when, they, when he was attacking, they were teasing him from on top of the wall, going, blind and lame people could defend this city. Like, you can't take this. And so what David does is he actually sends his men up the sewers. Um, and they get into the city through the sewers, and they conquer the city. Um, and David immediately moves in and renames it Jerusalem. So this is where the city of Jerusalem comes from. Um, it, it's not Jerusalem until David takes over the city. Up until then it had been Jabus. Um, so this morning psalm, we know that it was written after that battle because he says, O Jerusalem. So we know this is after the naming of the city, right? Um, so we know about, it had to happen after this certain point. In David's life, um, and I think it's pretty close because because his his shock you can see it in the song. I was glad when they said to me, "Let's go to the house of the Lord." And now here we are, standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. You can hear like the surprise in his voice, um, and and uh, a couple other interesting notes to point out. Um, we know that this was after the dream of building a temple uh, was there. 
um, because he mentions his dynasty, the dynasty of David, and, and he got the prophecy from God that he was going to have a dynasty. At the same time, he asked God if he could build a temple. So those kind of came together. So if he's mentioning a dynasty, you know he's already talked to Nathan. He's already asked if he can build a temple. God's already said no. So David knows he's, he's got this dream for a temple, but he also knows it's not going to be him. So this is pre-temple, post uh, uh, taking control of Jabus. Um, and so we know David gets, uh, didn't get to build the temple. So, um, so when he's writing about Jerusalem here in the house of God, he's not talking about the temple because the temple doesn't exist yet. It's a dream in his head, but it doesn't exist yet. He was, I was, was happy, past tense, when they said to me, let's go to the house of God. But, so this is not the temple. Um, so most likely David is kind of talking nostalgically about when they used to go to Shechem, which is where the Ark of the Covenant used to be kept um, to celebrate you know, annual festivals and things. Um, so to David, the, the house of God is wherever the ark is. Um, if it's out in a tent in Shechem, then that's, I was happy when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Um, and now he's brought the ark to Jerusalem um, and, and the whole nation can collect there. So since there's no temple in Shechem, um, David is not talking about a temple. Uh, and so he says this, Jerusalem is a well-built city. Um, its seamless walls cannot be breached. All the tribes of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here. They come to give thanks to the Lord your God as the law requires of Israel. I don't know if you guys remember our, our uh, tithe sermon, but God was like, you have to eat this wherever I choose to put my name. So David is now saying the law requires the people come here because this is where he chooses to put his name. So here's why I think the timing of this story um, is important. David's dream for Jerusalem was not complete. It's not finished. It wasn't even really accurate. Um, he says their, their seamless walls cannot be breached, which makes it sound like this city can't be taken. And he took it like 10 minutes ago. Like he's like, this city cannot be conquered. I mean, except by me, which we just did. But it, otherwise, it can't be conquered. So he, he's not even necessarily speaking accurately of Jerusalem. I guess you could argue he didn't breach the walls. He climbed under them in the sewers. But a breach is just a hole in a wall. So... I think the sewers are a breach. I don't know. But the important thing is that David's song isn't a song about what is. It's a song of faith. He's choosing what he knows can be, what he knows will be. This is, this is David seeing the Jerusalem that he knows is going to be there someday. And there, there's you know, one more reason I think the timing of this psalm is important. Uh, it's because of what's going on in David's life when he writes it. In David's early years, he wrote a lot of nature poetry. He wrote about God, you know, the sun coming across the sky. He wrote about a thunderstorm once. It was awesome. I have a feeling he was sitting outside watching sheep, and he's talking about how incredible the thunder is, and he likens it to the power of God. And so he wrote a lot of nature poetry, a lot of ha- you know, pop music. He wrote a lot of pop music when he was young. Um, just happy-go-lucky, fun stuff. Um, and then when he went on the run, it was all emo, like... It was, it was the lament psalms. It was, you know, why is everything falling apart around me? I mean, you've done anything wrong? Like, there's a lot of that. A lot of, you know, search my heart, oh God, and see that I'm not innocent. And what's funny is he writes a very similar song later, and he's like, don't search my heart, God. I don't want, I don't, I can't stand up to it. Um, but this um, is basically the start of a whole new writing career for David. Like, this is the first time he's gotten to write in a total place of experience and peace. Um, and so, so we know that this is the kind of music you write in peacetime. Uh, you write about, you know, he, he, uh, if you look at the contents, he, he's writing a song um, about 
all of Israel coming to worship. You don't do that in the middle of a war. You know, just leave your home and gather and, and come for a, for a festival. He's talking about governmental stuff and this is where justice happens. The running of the country. You know, the things that you only do when you're not running for your life every day. This is peacetime music. You know, you, you, CCR and Janis Joplin for wartime. This is, you know, Justin Bieber and, and Selena Gomez. This is peacetime music. This is... Uh, <laughs> David even tells his listener to focus on peace. This is a peace song. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. Oh, Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, may you have peace. So here's the deal. Jerusalem isn't the city David wants it to be yet. He's been told that he can't build the temple, so he knows that he'll never see what he's wishing for. By all accounts, the nation, the nation never really did celebrate uh, in Jerusalem the way um, David had hoped they would. Um, it was big, but the, the whole nation never really came. There's times in the prophets call out that they never really did. The prophets are like complaining to the people, you never did come to the festivals like you were supposed to. There, there's political intrigue in, in David's palace, just like every other palace everywhere. One of his sons overthrows him at one point. David has to run from his own palace in Jerusalem. Right in Jerusalem in this palace is where he committed adultery, commissioned murder, and, and called an unneeded census just so he could brag about how many people were in his kingdom, which made God angry, and he had to watch God pour out judgment on the nation from Jerusalem. So in other words, Jerusalem was a mess. But it was also amazing. It was, it was one of the most famous and beautiful cities in the known world at that time. It, it was an attraction for centuries, millennia, really. People still go there because it's amazing. Jerusalem was amazing and it was awful. And David got to choose which version he sang about. And I hope you see where I'm going with this because your life is the same. It's horrible and it's incredible. It's beautiful and it's painful. And you get to choose which one you sing about. In this psalm, and, and honestly, in this, this week's Advent virtue, is a great place to start. As David sings about his precious city, he focuses on peace. He prays for peace. He calls others to do the same. And I think that needs to be our score. I don't know if you've noticed, and I'm, I'm sure there's going to be a shocker to most of you, but... The song playing in our culture right now is not a song of peace. I know you have to be pretty observant to catch that, so don't, don't let your jaw fall open. But at the men's breakfast yesterday, someone just said the word politics. I think it was Graham. And like a collective shiver went through the group. Like, I think it's the only time I've ever been sitting with a bunch of guys and we were like, can't we just talk about our feelings? Like, do we have to go to, do we have to, go to politics? Right now, you can't even have a nuanced conversation that might bunny trail into politics because it's so combative. And that's our culture. And we all know that. But here's the shocking revelation. We're supposed to be different. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> we're supposed to be different. Christians are supposed to be different. We're supposed to live as though we're, we're in this world, but not of this world. We're supposed to have a different score playing in our hearts and minds. So let's do a test. Close your eyes real quick and, and think about 
the political climate in your world right now. Think about the issues that are important to you. Think about the candidates you support. What is the emotional soundtrack playing in the background? Is it peace? Do you feel at peace? If not, you need to change the song. You actually have the power to do that. You serve and were rescued by the Prince of Peace. You can choose to focus on that. Our God is big and controls this world. You can choose to focus on that. Paul said in Colossians, And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. You can choose to focus on that. So what we need to do is engage the politics because sticking your head in the sand and, and giving up you know, and saying the system's rigged, that doesn't help either. So we do the politics, but we do what David does in Psalms 42. We listen to the soundtrack in our hearts as we engage politics and we change the song and we go, you know what? My God is in control. I can live at peace. I can choose to focus on that. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? As I think on politics, as I think on the state of the world, I can go, whoa, 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 whoa. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your trust in God. I can talk to my own soul. But it's not just politics. There, there's, a, there's a motto they teach in advertising. I can't remember who said it. I think it was David Ogilvie, the like, father of advertising, where he said, great marketing is not meeting someone's, offering a product to meet someone's need. Great marketing is making them aware of a need they didn't even know they had so that you can meet it. In other words, marketing is about building discontent. If I can make you unhappy with the way things are, I can sell you something. That is not a song of peace. The goal of advertising is to take our peace to rob us of the contentment that makes us feel, to make us feel like we need more. We need to pick a better score. We need to pick a better song. Today we're bombarded by a million messages that tell us that we need to eat better, exercise more, raise our kids right, which means making sure their pajamas are fireproof. I don't know if you knew that. Like, and then they figured out that the stuff they spray on them to make, are kids just bursting into flames in their sleep? I don't know why, like, fireproof pajamas are a big deal. But apparently they just figured out that the stuff they spray on them to make them fireproof can cause cancer. So now you're supposed to check and make sure they're not fireproof because the fireproof ones can kill them. (sighs) We need to do cooperative parenting and co-sleeping and organic baby food. And of course the way our grandparents did it is barbaric and preposterous. Don't even look at that. Need to stay up on the headlines because they change all the time. And if that is the song track of our lives, we need a better song. I spent all of 2020 with my head in the news. I was obsessed over the next mass gathering guidelines, you know, and all the all the stuff. And I spent every day reading about what liability the church could have if we decided to push the guidelines and have church anyway, and and how much trouble the church could get in. Pretty much. Wound up opening as soon as we could. We opened faster than other churches, but we waited till we could do it safe and make sure we included everybody, whether it was online or whatnot. And, and uh, all that time was basically wasted. It, it was hard on my family. It was hard on my, my peace and my soul. And, and 
I could have just trusted in God and see, oh, we'll open up as soon as we can, otherwise we're going to talk online and blah, blah, blah. But I didn't. I chose a bad song for like a year and it was devastating. And finally I had to commit my soul to a better song. I had to command my soul, why are you so obsessed, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. In Psalms 42, when David speaks to his own soul, it sounds like a, a fun little piece of poetry. But I'm here to tell you that that is not only solid, but it is like, it's not only like solid contemporary psychology, but it's deep biblical wisdom. Speak to your own soul. You simply don't have to listen to all the bad music that's out there right now. You don't have to listen to the messages the world is trying to play in the back of your head every day. You can pick a better song. And a great place to start, Psalm 122, today's lectionary passage, David sings about Jerusalem, the the gathering place of God's people, the the strong and powerful place that can't be breached, the the place where, where right judgment is administered. And who realizes that this is a representation of the church, of what the church is supposed to be too? The gathering place of God's people where the gates of hell will not prevail against it and, and right judgment is supposed to be administered as God's people divide, rightly divide the word of truth. This is, this is a picture of the church. So everything David says about Jerusalem, we could sing about the church. We could. And, 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 and I'm, and, we at OTCC, I feel, are kind of disproportionately high in the number of people that come in limping. That's what I call it. What I mean by that is people who were beat up by church somewhere else. Came in a little bit sore. A little bit bruised. And part of what we love to do here at Open Tables is hopefully rebuild some faith in what church can be. And, and, that's, and, and the institution of church, that's, that's in our heart all the time. But many of us, including myself at times, if we're honest, when we think about church, not necessarily open table, not necessarily us, but the church, many of us, if we listen closely, the song in the background is not peace. It's frustration. It's, it's, it's anger. It's, it's bitterness. And we need a better song. Yeah, like, like the psalmist said, everything might look pretty rough right now, but there's still a God in the house. Amen? And he's faithful and he looks after it. And and these are his people. And and though I may not always agree with them, I can pray for their peace and their prosperity. I can call all other people to pray for their peace. When I think about other churches, even those that might bug me, even those that frustrate me at times, I can stop and say, why are you frustrated on my soul? Has Christ not become our very peace? What good does getting frustrated do for this situation at all? I pray for the peace of this church. I can pick a better song. So how do we respond to this? I can obviously go on all day giving an example, example, example of the score that plays in the background of the movie of our life. Or maybe it's a long like episodic TV show like something HBO does or... We can look at the way the world wants to color every scene with a song that drives us deeper and deeper and deeper into the culture's worldview. At the end of the day, the message is simple. We need to pick a better song. And this is probably a cruel survey in a season where some of the catchiest and possibly cheesiest songs in history are playing everywhere. But 
give me real quick the, the songs that get stuck in your head. Anybody got one that you hate when it gets in there? Now that I put you on the spot, you won't be able to think of it. What do you got? Oh, Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Yeah, that one's rough. I am so sorry for you. Jake. Cotton Eye Joe. Oh, that's worse. Cotton Eye Joe. Yeah. Baby Shark. Ew, yeah. That one wasn't just in my head. That was in my world for like two straight years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? Anybody else got one? For me, it's... It's unfortunately whatever is the poppiest and cheesiest thing playing at the time. Like my kids used to play a game they called the dad jukebox where three of them would at the same time walk by me humming or whistling a song to see which one of their songs I picked up. And so I would just be doing the dishes and all of a sudden I'd start whistling and one of them would, yeah, and the other ones would like, ah, like, what are you doing? They're like, we're trying to see which one of us could get a song stuck in your head. Like, that's the game is who can get a song stuck in dad's head. While decorating for Christmas yesterday, Becca plays Justin Bieber's Mistletoe and and then just shuts off the radio. How cruel is that? So I'm whistling <laughs> the dumbest Christmas song ever for like an hour until I was literally like, can we play something to get this out of my head, please? I can't get it out. Shorty should not be a lyric in any Christmas song. Like, that's just Unbelievable. But the reason this series is so important is because music gets stuck in your head. It does. Some of my favorite movies are my favorite because of the amazing score. And, and the songs get stuck in my head. But that same reality is true of the messages the world is singing as well. They get stuck in your head. And they're hard to get out. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, they did a big survey. Um, several thousand people participate in this survey. Uh, and we're going to do it with our little group. What percentage of America do you think is, is African American? African American. 35, 33, I'm hearing. 23. The, the national average, people guessed 41%. It's actually 12%. Latino, what would you say about Latino? Closer to 40? 25? The survey said 39. It's actually 17. Families with an average income of over 500,000 a year. The whole family. How many people do you think both people working make over 500,000 a year? What percentage of America? People surveyed said 26%. People think 26% of the country makes that. It's it's 1%. 1%. Somebody said one. Yeah. Left-handed Americans. 5%? 15? The, the survey said 34%. And if you watch a lot of sports, you know, because there is a disproportionate number of, like, left-handed pitchers, you know, compared to the population... You know, you might think everybody's left-handed, but no, it's 11%. It's a right-handed world. This one's fun. Number of vegans and vegetarians. What do you think it is? Vegans and vegetarians. What did you say, 50? 
The survey said 30%. The country thinks 30% of the country is it's 5%. 5%. This one was ridiculous. How many people do you think live in New York City? What percentage of the country lives in New York City? Huh? The, the survey said 30%. Like one third of the country lives in it. But if you watch TV shows and you watch movies, you you know, it's a lot of people. It's 3% of the population. 3% of the population. And here are the big ones. Transgender. What percent of the population do you think is transgender? Currently. The survey said 21%. It's actually under 1%. The entire LGBTQ community. What do you think? A full one percent. Eight, I hear. The survey said thirty percent. It's actually three percent. The entire LGBTQ rainbow crew is three percent. Now, is America just really bad at math and statistics, you think? In some cases, yes. The New York thing is that's just dumb. That's just, that's a hundred million people. Like 30% is a hundred million people. That's, that's bad math. But I don't think it's just ignorance that, that made everyone get these numbers wrong. The songs we listen to every day get stuck in our head. And if you look at, at those numbers, they probably match or might even be a little bit low of the media we see. You think 30% of our media, because they think 30% is LGBTQ, that's probably pretty close to the amount of media coverage they get. 30% of our media might be something to do with the LGBTQ community. So that gets stuck in your head, and it plays, and it plays, and it plays. And the next thing you know, you're thinking, the number's got to be 30%. That's all I hear. That's all that plays through my head. That's the song in the background. And all of a sudden, the song isn't matching reality. Yeah, if you watch a lot of sports, it seems like half the world's left-handed. Half the pitchers are, anyway, if you're a baseball fan. But no, 11%. Yeah, if you watch watch a lot of TVs and movies where everybody makes money, it's easy to think the whole country's making money. The songs we listen to every day get stuck in our head, and they start to shape the way we think things are. These songs are not an accident. They're not just background noise. Just like pop music is not an accident. They write it a certain way so it will get stuck in your head. That's what makes it pop music. It's sticky. This is why I said I'm going to get preachy um, in this series because I can't tell you to feel peace. That's just mean. You can't control what you feel. I can't tell you to be at peace. I understand that some people just access peace more easily than other people. And that, that's a different in personality. And I get that. And it's not fair to command you to, do, to be something you're not. But I can absolutely tell you, and I'm looking in the mirror when I say this, to choose to focus on peace. That's different. I can't choose you to feel peace or be at peace, but I can choose you to focus on peace. To bring it up to your mind. To speak to your own soul. And say, why are you doing this, oh my soul? 
Why are you thinking this way? Why are you choosing the negative stuff to focus on? Oh, my soul. I'm going to put my faith in God. And can I guarantee that if you focus on peace, you'll, you won't feel any fear and anxiety? No. But I can guarantee that if you do focus on the world the music is playing, you will feel more anxiety and fear. Examine your soul and the song that you're listening to and ask yourself, why on earth are you listening to that song? Even if it's a true song. Because the world's a mess. I'm not pretending to deny, I'm not suggesting denial. Own the song, recognize the world is a mess, and then choose a better song. God is still on the throne. That's a different song. So here's how I'd love to respond to this message. Advent comes with four virtues. Peace, love, hope, and joy. And we're given a week to meditate on and, and contemplate each virtue in Advent. So this week, tackle peace. I'm not saying go be a peacemaker this year, go spread peace. We've done that in the past. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. You know, go, go make up with somebody you have enmity against. That's awesome. But this week, I'd love for you to spend some time listening to the music playing in your head. Listen to the music that you just let naturally roll through there. Is it peace? What are you thinking about? What, what is the emotional color of these thoughts? Are they, are they peaceful? Are they true? And if they are true, is there something that's equally as true that is more peaceful? Ask, take a second to ask yourself that question. Is there something else I could listen to? That is also true. Choose a better score this week. And as the, that song plays in the background, see how it changes your life. I think it will. I really think it will.